I'm Emily. And I'm Hannah. We are best friends and dietitians. We have a goal of challenging nutrition misinformation and fitness trends with an evidence-based approach. Each episode, we will dish up our thoughts about the latest facts on a popular health-related topic. We're the Upbeat Dietitians. All right. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the Upbeat Dietitians podcast. Hello, guys. We are joined today with another very special guest. We are actually joined today with a food scientist, which is really cool, and one of our college friends and colleagues. And her name's Nia. (laughs) And today we'll be talking a lot about like GMOs, chemicals in food, uh, organic food, all that fun stuff. And we'll be able to hear about it from a food scientist's perspective, which is really awesome. So just to start off, Nia, if you want to tell us about yourself, what you do, any past education we talk about, hobbies, the floor is yours. Hi, guys. So my name is Nia, and I'm a food scientist based in the Aloha State, Rainbow State, Hawaii. Yay! Super fun. <laughs> I met Emily and Hannah during my time at Purdue. I was actually co-workers with Emily, and we did a super fun job, am I right? <laughs> a very fun job. I guess I met Hannah just in passing because Hannah and Emily always hang out together, and then so whenever Hannah, Emily is there, Hannah is sometimes there. Um, it's true. And it's true. So my major, <laughs> yeah, my major is food science and I kind of graduated around the same time as them and a little bit more about me so I am from Indonesia and I moved to the U.S. in 2015 for college and then after I graduated in 2019 I moved to Hawaii because my boyfriend at the time right now my fiance is currently stationed here in the Navy yeah, Nia has a really cool background story. I feel like you've traveled so much and you've, it's so cool when you hear about people going to another country for college because I only want to stay over. So it's not that exciting. Whereas you went across like the world. Um, but yeah, you can also tell us about your work. What do you do as a food scientist? And what exactly does that look like since some people might not know what food scientists do? Yeah, so right now I'm just actually in between jobs. So um, when I was in the food industry, I used to work in the regulatory side. So more like food safety, um, making sure that people don't get killed when they eat a company's food. And I was working in a, a food company too. So basically I was the one that make sure that everyone in the company makes the food properly and safely and also dealing with like third party auditors and stuff like that. Uh, Right now I am doing kind of like a part-time consulting and research gig for small businesses here in Hawaii, just kind of like as a freelancer. Um, So a lot of people have asked me, so what is it? Oh, what does a food scientist actually do? Because a lot of people automatically think it's like linked to nutrition or like some sort of cooking thing, like culinary, but it's actually not any of that. 
because food science is actually a field that includes chemistry, biochemistry, microbiology, physics, engineering, some nutrition, some biology, and math. So basically every science thing you have ever learned, we learn it and apply it in food science. And with that, the job possibilities are endless. So I know a lot of food scientists really want to do um, product research and development, which is probably like the more fun side of food science, which means that you make new products that you see on the shelves, like the weirdest things that you see in the supermarket right now, those are probably created by food scientists and chefs working together. Um, And then... Another career option would be regulatory affairs. So like something similar to what I did. Basically, we just keep our food supply safe from killing people. And you can also work in the private sector as a third-party auditor. You just go to um, food companies and audit them. And you get paid to travel and audit them, which is pretty cool. Or you can also work for the government like USDA, FDA, and stuff like that. Um, you could also do some like consumer research psychology. So basically you kind of study how they perceive food through a sensory level. You could also go through the academia route. So teaching, becoming a professor in food science, which is what a lot of food science majors end up doing for some reason, because I do have a lot of colleagues that end up in academia and research. So basically improving food and beverage texture, taste, analyze different methods of food processing, etc. And process engineering. So basically, you can design and develop new food processing systems, new ways to store food and package food and handling foods like the possibilities are endless. That's very cool. Yeah, food science is crazy. There's so much you can do. And I feel like I just hear about what you do. And I don't know what's going on. (laughs) although you were making different types of like milks i remember when i talked to you last i i often confide in nia about new food things and also sustainability i was talking to her about the whole almond milk dilemma i know i talked about that on a (laughs) previous episode but nia was the one who actually told me about the need for how much water is utilized to create like however much almond milk yeah actually yeah that's actually true like almond is not the most sustainable nut product out there so then i guess our last question for our little about you section is what do you like to do for fun because the people know your education they know what you do as a food scientist and what food scientists possibly can do but on your with your free time, especially having time in Hawaii, which most people don't really have all those resources to them. What do you like to do for fun? Actually, I'm a boring person. I don't like having fun and I just work all the time. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> no, that's not me. That's that's my fiance. He just works all the time. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, in my free time, I actually really like doing digital art. So drawing and I also like cooking and trying a bunch of new food places and who doesn't like eating, right? And like in Hawaii, there's just so many good food places because it's like a cultural melting pot here. And so you literally can get any 
food imaginable and the hybrid of it so like any fusion food like you can literally get it here and it's amazing i also love going to the gym working out lifting weight and you know specifically in hawaii while i'm still here i also really like swimming in the ocean so like snorkeling trying to find sea turtles here and there and occasionally hiking as a social thing to get along with people because hiking is tiring and i'm not a huge fan of being sweaty like that but i do it for friends you know (laughs) mia will go on a hike for friendship (laughs) for friendship there you go Okay, so I guess our first question actually was, what is a food scientist and what do their everyday responsibilities look like? But you kind of already touched on that. And I guess this is kind of more so, do you have anything else you'd like to add? I know we already kind of drilled you about this. And- yeah, and people always mistaken me as someone who can give nutritional advice or someone that can cook really well, which I can't. Well, I can't cook, but... I'm not certified to do any of that. It's just to clarify. We appreciate it. We're here to educate and help yes. people understand more what these different professions do. Yeah. Nia yeah. was in some of our classes at Purdue, but it was more so like the science nutrition classes. Definitely not like the counseling, MNT, mm-hmm. therapy kind of MNT. stuff. MNT. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember those days when you guys were just, like, dying in, <laughs> in that MNT class. Yeah. Well, let's jump into kind of our first specific question, I guess, then. So, Nia, I know GMOs are probably something you get asked about all the time, but let's ask you again. <laughs> Will you tell us what a GMO is and what its purpose, and maybe touch on, like, the safety of it as well. Like, are they as harmful as people kind of think they are? Yeah, so actually, I'm super passionate about just educating people about GMOs and, like, a lot of things that people unnecessarily fear about what's in their food supply. And, yeah, I can probably go on for hours about GMO, but I will cut it short for you guys. So GMOs, basically, they stand for genetically modified organisms. So according to the Institute of Food Technologists, which is a group of, a but, which is a bunch of food science nerds making an organization, <laughs> FYI, they are simply crops or bacteria or like organisms that are produced through the introduction of pieces of DNA that allows them to have desirable traits. So GMOs have actually been applied in our food system since way back in the day when farmers, you know, in the 1800s, 1700s, whenever farming started to happen, they realized that, oh, some plants actually have better traits than others. And what if, and then they they start to think like, what if we make some kind of hybrid thing where if we crossbreed them, then they might just have, you know, better qualities in their next generation and so on. And actually, uh, those traditional methods of crossbreeding is also considered GMO. And without them, we actually wouldn't have common food products that we see today look like what it's today. So for example, like a watermelon, it won't be as big as it is today. Corn, probably won't look like corn. I don't know what corn in the 1700s looked like. I have no idea. But 
Yeah, but a lot of the really common food items now, they are a product of traditional methods of genetic modification that has been applied for a very long time. But then again, like, can you imagine how long it took them to crossbreed and do all those trial and errors for, and then just hope and wait and see if the outcome of their crossbreeding is actually what they want? And so that really took a lot of time um, to just you know, do that. That's why GMO has been introduced recently because it is a much faster and efficient way to create those desirable traits that all these farmers want in our, in our food and our food system. I know there's ha- there has been a lot of controversy with GMOs. I mean, yeah, <laughs> a lot of people are really scared of it for some reason. But GMOs are actually really safe. They're very efficient, you know, like compared to the traditional cross-reading methods that I mentioned earlier. And they're actually really necessary to feed the world's growing population right now. Um, they actually reduce crop losses by developing resistance to pets, pets, <laughs> pets without the use of pesticides. Pets like a dog will eat corn or something, right? <laughs> okay, I'll repeat that. I'll repeat that. Okay. So it reduced like GMOs actually reduce crop losses by developing resistance to common pests without the use of pesticides. So as a result, it will increase the yield of the crops and it's actually better for the environment because you use less chemicals to treat the plants, right? Because, you know, the chemicals can get washed off in the, in the water system and everything. And the plants can actually be adjusted to adapt to harsh growing conditions, which, again, will help so many people who are in really dry or really cold areas. Um, they... They can also increase the nutritional content by genetic modification. So, for, for example, like vitamin A and golden rice. And they can also improve desirable characteristics for the food. So, for example, they can reduce the allergen, allergenicity. <laughs> pronouncing that right? Aller, allergenicity, meaning that it's not going to cause a severe allergic reaction as much. Um, it could also delay ripening for flavor improvement. So apparently, like if a tomato sticks in the plant longer, while the ripening process is long, is like slowed down, then it could create more sweeter tomatoes. And also, like another example would be creating potatoes with reduced starch content. So when you turn them into fries, they actually absorb less fat during frying. Isn't that really cool? Huh. That's so interesting. I did not know about that. Yeah. Yeah. I want to um, ask you, like, yeah. how they create that, but I feel like that'd take, like, another, like, 40 minutes. So, like... And it'd probably be, can, like, way over my head. I, yeah, I know. I'd be like... Genetics oh. is not... Genetics is not my forte, so I, I, I actually don't don't know how to answer your question. It's okay. That's okay. We'll just be amazed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, another fun fact, you don't, um, GMOs are not just used in plants and, you know, the food that we eat. They also use it in bacteria to create, you know, for example, like insulin. A lot of people really need insulin. And like the traditional ways of creating insulin is actually really expensive. So 
without GMOs, insulin will be as accessible as it is today. That's really cool. I didn't know that either, actually. Yeah. Well, there is a lot of fear-mongering around GMOs. Can you kind <laughs> of let our listeners know why there's no need to be fearful around these GMOs and how you've already kind of mentioned how they're so helpful, but um, maybe like what are some of the common myths people are kind of hearing and why they're not true? The biggest problem surrounding GMOs is that a lot of people fear what they don't know. And a lot of consumers are not really educated of what it is and they really don't understand what GMOs are. So that's why there's a lot of fear mongering and misinformation circulated by the media or bloggers, you know, so many (laughs) bloggers out there. And so I can dive into some of the most popular GMO myths that I've heard, which (laughs) some of them actually sound pretty funny. So the first myth is people think that GMOs are unnatural, but that's not true because, you know, like I said earlier, humans have been selectively breeding crops and animals for centuries. I mean, just look at the Pomeranian. Do you think that's not a GMO? (laughs) Right? (laughs) That was good. I love that. Yeah. Oh my god. And then... (laughs) I mean, the term natural Uh and... Nutrition in general is just like not even a term that really means anything. So I I can see why that myth is just like so easily debunked. Yeah, I will talk about that later too. The term natural. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then I guess another myth that people have been believing is that, okay, hear me out. This, This sounds very ridiculous. GMOs are a corporate plot to control developing nations and their food supply. So basically okay. they're saying a lot of corporations, they just want to take over the world through making people hungry or something. <laughs> but it's actually false because a lot of developing nations actually prefer farming GMO crops because it does produce more crops and it helps alleviate hunger. And they actually benefit the poorest nations the most because of that. Yeah, also with the um, fortification part too. You know, some people on the other side of the world, they're lacking a lot of vitamins. And without GMOs, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be as healthy as they are today. And another myth that people believe is that GMOs are not adequately tested. And therefore, they're bad for you. So this is like a lot of things that people have been talking about in the media because that's what they're basing their fears on. But actually, GMOs are one of the most regulated food products um, out there because a lot of governments everywhere, they employ strict biosafety protocols to ensure that any new GMO product poses no threat to human or animal health or the environment. So. These protocols include laboratory and field tests that may span years and years. And the resulting plants and foods are far more thoroughly tested than their conventional counterparts. Another myth is that people believe that GMOs are unhealthy. And that's actually false because the prestigious National Academies of Science agrees with a lot of U.S. regulatory agencies that Food grown from GMO crops are actually really safe to eat, and they 
have no they're no riskier than consuming the same foods containing ingredients from normal crops that are not GMOs. And you know, another way to see how GMOs are healthier is how I mentioned earlier that some GMO plants are resistant to pests. So they don't require any pesticides, you know, which means that you're getting less pesticides in your food. So it's actually healthier. And like, I can dive into all the studies that scientists have done in GMOs, but they have not, they have not found that GMO foods are any riskier or nutritionally better than their conventional counterparts. Uh, thank you for that. That was, I feel like, a very good summary of a lot of the most common GMO myths and a good, you brought a good rebuttal for all of them. And I hope that people really do understand that GMOs were created to help us and not set us back in any way or any type of scheme. Taking over the world. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think our next section that we wanted to discuss with you was a lot of people talk about the chemicals in food and how, I won't say anything specifically leading, any leading questions right there, but I'm sure for everyone listening, you have heard at one point in your life, someone say like, look at all the, like these chemicals in this food. I'm not going to eat that because of the chemicals, yada, yada, yada. So, Nia, I'd love to hear from you your take on chemicals in food and kind of we can start with what their purpose is and then lead into, like we did with GMOs, are they harmful and specific examples of them? Yeah, so I think I can correct your statement a little bit because if you really think about it, everything around us is made of chemicals. From the water that we drink and the air that we breathe, it's actually a chemical. So, so yeah, like when you say chemicals in food, everything is already made of chemicals. <laughs> yeah, so I guess before I answer your question, I can I want to give you guys a pop quiz. <laughs> I can read. I did not realize we're getting quizzed today. Nia, let's see how we do. No Okay, I'm, I'm going to read these three chemicals and you have to guess what food product this belongs to. Okay, the first one is linolenic acid. The second one is phylloquinone. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And then the third one is 2-methylbutylacenoate for normal people those chemicals probably sound very scary right because oh my gosh it sounds so chemistry (laughs) but can you guess what food this belongs to i just saw okay i have to be honest i accidentally just saw the answer (laughs) (laughs) i i went to go look at what the other two were because i'm remembering the little linic and then my eye skipped so i feel like well, what I will say is, isn't linolenic omega-6? Yeah. So that's my contribution. <laughs> yeah. That's probably in a lot of stuff. Um, 
Yeah, I saw it too. I was peeking. Not on purpose, but because before you even said don't look, I was looking. <laughs> yeah, but can you can you tell can you tell everyone what it is? It's a banana people. Yeah. I have seen that like meme of like the picture of the banana and like the 80,000 ingredients that are in it, which are all just like the chemical components. And it is very eye opening. Yeah. They should put nutrition labels on bananas. I feel like that would, I guess that would, (laughs) that would be a fear mongering tactic though. So I guess. Whose side are you on, Emily? (laughs) I I was on the side of chaos for like five seconds. I'm like, yes. No, yeah. It's like just fruit and vegetables and like the things where you can literally take off like a tree or a bush that people consider natural or whatever have so many chemicals in it. But just because like you don't recognize the name, I've heard so many times where if you can't, if you don't know what all the ingredients are in the label, then like don't buy that product. And I think the only people that are going to know probably all the ingredients are, like, food scientists. Like, not even, or like... chemists. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the chemists who, like, constructed it. So, I don't think that's a great philosophy to follow. Because you will not be eating a lot of food. See, example A, you can't eat a banana if you didn't know what those three were. You're going to be starving to death if you follow that rule. I can't imagine if people start freaking out when they hear dihydrogen monoxide. <laughs> That's one of my favorite ones. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's Which water, one? people. It's okay, water. Okay. I was about to say me. I'm like, you got to tell the people that it was also... <laughs> <laughs> I, think I, I think there's a website that, like, is anti-dihydrogen... Uh, monoxide? Is that... That's it, right? Yeah, it's like, it's satire. It's satire. It's not real. Like, they're not actually trying to, like, cancel water. (laughs) Since, I think the purpose, I'll have to link it or something, because it's so funny. But the purpose of creating that website was to kind of lean on that, like, misinformation. But this website really was, you like, Honing on on the fact that using these like bigger scientific words as like fear mongering tactics and just kind of not because you understand it right away what the word is doesn't mean you should fear it. I guess it's normal for people to be scared of things that they don't know, but yeah. you know, as consumers, we also need to educate ourselves properly. Not through blogs. Not through... Okay, should I even mention a specific blog name? <laughs> Is that bad? Do it. Yeah. Well, like, well, they can follow blogs by, like, food scientists. I feel like that'd be, like... Like, checking the credibility of the blogger. If they provide their resources. That's the most important thing. You know, like... The biggest fear-monger, misinformation blogger out there is the food babe. I think everybody knows this at this point. Food babe. Have you guys heard 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 of her? her. I've heard of her. It's it's not the food science babe. No, she she is cool. I like her. The food science babe is cool. Is she the the one 
Is she the one that used to call herself a nutrition guru? No, that's Meow Mix or whatever her name is. Oh, yes, yes. Is she a diet? Okay, wait, side note. No, is she's she... not a dietitian. Okay. I'm like, she, is a huge... she also has a huge following for talking about nutrition all the time. But anyway, back to yeah. the food babe. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah. going to look her up right now because I feel like I've heard of her. Yeah. <laughs> Nia, what is what type of content does she have? Just to provide some background to the audience, I guess. Oh, See, I have I heard of her. Yes. Sorry. Yes. I, I <laughs> will venture into her page so that I can protect myself from the misinformation. But I've just heard, you know, in passing from other professionals in the food industry about this person. She's well known in the, but like she's very well known in the within the community as someone that's very misleading i just read like the first post i saw says won't hijack your taste buds with addicting chemicals and they're talking about a chick-fil-a sandwich if it's oh my homemade. gosh like msg yeah yeah yes this is definitely talking about i see where you're talking about like the ingredients that someone might not understand what it means but she lists a lot of them I don't know what Chick-fil-A did to her recently, but she's going after them. <laughs> oh, well, we, I think that'll be interesting to do an episode about MSG. Yes. Mm. MSG is another... Nia, we'll bring you back on. <laughs> MSG is my, is, my, is my love. I love MSG. <laughs> MSG is great. I know. There's That's I'm another... Uh, you, you don't have... Yeah, you don't have to include this in the podcast, but I actually, for for Darius, since he's on deployment right now, I brought him a bag of MSG for deployment. I'm oh. I'm being serious. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Fun facts. That's how much I support MSG. I remember at Fincy in 2019. It was 2019 that we went, Emily? Yeah, right. They had a whole booth at this conference that we go to on MSG, and they gave me, like, a giant bottle of just, like, MSG to put on your food. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> like, MSG, like, itself had a whole table to themselves. It was great. I didn't get a bottle of MSG. I think it was by the Quaker <laughs> Oats booth, and I don't know why I remember that, but I do very vividly. <laughs> so it's, like, very vivid in my brain for some reason. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Okay. 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 Back to the topic. Yes, I was about to say, like, we gotta, we gotta... we do this sometimes. Just sidetrack. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I guess when you guys talk to me about, well, not talk to me. Sorry. Ah. When you guys ask me about the chemicals in food, I think a lot of people are referring to food additives because those are usually the ones that people are not familiar like, familiar with, right? Um. So food additives, by definition, they're actually substances that are added to food, like anything that is added to food that is not found in the food naturally. So they can be preservatives, vitamins and minerals, flavors, colors, sweeteners, leavening agents, emulsifiers, stabilizers, and thickeners. You know, I mean, again, like similar to GMOs, very interesting. Food additives have, have actually been used since, you know, the olden days. Because back then, people don't have refrigerators, so they come up with ways to preserve their food. 
So even as something as simple as adding salt or adding sugar, smoking, vinegaring, that's actually a food additive process, if you really think about it. So yeah, like Emily was saying earlier, you know, a lot of people in the internet say things like, don't eat what you can't pronounce. A lot of the fear that comes with the food additives that they don't know about is because of fear-based marketing and fear-mongering. Like a lot of these companies, they want to promote all natural, preservative-free products, but then it's actually based on the consumer's fear of not knowing what it is. But instead, they can just educate themselves better, you know? <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny, but a lot of the Karens out there in the internet will probably tell me they've done their research. Where did they get that from? I don't know. The first blog that they find when they Google about food additives, probably not the best resource. But then the only research you should believe is not from those blogs or news articles, but for, from peer-reviewed scientific publications backed by science. Hashtag facts, not fear, people. I love it. Those darn Karens are always yeah. making waves. I know. Yeah. They're all over telling us what we shouldn't eat. Mm-hmm. I once, I think I said, not directly to one of them, but like rhetorically to someone in conversation, I was like, with all this food we shouldn't eat, it's easier just to not eat anything. Have you guys heard about the Dirty Dozen and Clean 15? Yes, I'm <laughs> actually dying to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so... Okay, for those that don't know, so this is a list that is created by this organization called the Environmental Working Group or or the EWG. So this list claims to be ranking fruits and vegetables based on the levels of pesticides from the dirtiest to the cleanest. But do we really have to worry about all these food products? Because some of these food products are really, really common. Yeah, so it... In order to tackle that, like a lot of their research is actually not true because they don't use the correct parameters to measure the pesticide residues on the food. Yeah, the EWG is actually very biased with their findings and their data because they're actually backed by big organic food companies, if that makes sense. So, like, if they're funded by these companies that want to sell more organic foods like eh, that's that's kind of biased you know yeah but anyways actually the u.s department of agriculture visits farms and collects a lot of food samples each year there's this program by the u.s department of agriculture that collects all of the information about pesticide level residues on a lot of different food products in the market right now and out of the samples that they tested over 99% of them had residues well below the tolerances established by the EPA, with 42% having no detectable pesticide residue at all. Yeah, and just a fun fact, I think a lot, like Emily, Hannah, and I have heard this from several lectures when we were at Purdue. So yeah, because of the amount of pesticides that's undetectable in the food, you really need to eat a whole damn lot of it in order to have any adverse reactions because there's so little of the pesticide residues on the food. It's parts per billion. Like, imagine how little that is. 
And so I found this really interesting calculator online that calculates how much food, how much servings of food you you can eat that that will it won't even affect you even if you eat this much like in terms of a pesticide level pesticide residue level um okay so i am going to read the number of servings a child can consume without having any health effects from pesticides even if it had the highest levels of pesticide residues recorded by the usda so a child can eat 7,441 servings of kale, 181 servings of strawberries, and 378 servings of tomatoes. And even eating that much, they will not get an adverse reaction. (laughs) More likely to die from like some kind of like vitamin overdose than pesticides at that point. (laughs) I wanted to say that like, I want to see... 7,441 servings of kale. Like, honestly. I like it would, like, <laughs> fill a room. Like, that's yeah. a lot. Oh, my God. That's like a farm. You know those rooms that are, like a, full, like, a bed? Like, people make, like, rooms that are, like, the entire floor is just a bed. Like, an entire room that's just kale. Like, uh, that'd be so fun to, like, just yeah, maybe, jump yeah, maybe, into. Yeah, maybe one of these days someone, you know... And then when someone proposes, they, you know, spread flowers everywhere. They can spread flowers everywhere. And then you can spread just kale. There you go. That's how you use the 7,000 servings of kale. (laughs) How romantic. (laughs) Everyone can then pick up their kale and eat it for the rest. Look at the shirt I'm wearing today. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I got my kale shirt on. I just remembered. Yay. Perfect. fitting. What is this podcast sometimes? I just don't know. So, yeah, anyways, with regards to food additives, you know, you may see a lot of labels that says, like, no artificial preservatives, no artificial flavors, no synthetic colors, you know, stuff like that. But a lot of these are actually marketing tactics that stems from misinformation and fear. These labels imply that certain food additives must be worth avoiding. Because, like, after all, why would all these food products specifically be called out if they weren't bad for us? You know, like, I think that's how they are making people think about these. But are they really that bad? And are they unsafe? And why should we really... I'm sorry. Why should we be trying to avoid these food additives in the first place a quote that i found on the internet that i super love internet meaning you know the legit side of the internet the food scientist blog like blogger whether a chemical is naturally occurring or man-made whether or not you can pronounce it tells us nothing about its safety i really like Especially the first part of that quote where it's like, oh, whether a chemical is naturally occurring or man-made. Because there are naturally occurring toxins in the, like, in the world and plants that you can, they're technically edible, but they will, in some cases, kill you if you eat enough of it. And that's technically natural, but that does yeah. not mean that it's safe. So I really like that portion. Mm-hmm. I like the quote overall, but especially I think that part, because going back to our whole natural discussion, 
it fits well. Yeah, and also um, referring back to our discussion earlier about food additives, you know, every single food additive in our food supply has been thoroughly tested before it even hit the market. Because why would the, the government feed us stuff that is actually bad for us? You know, like there's already safety levels established for everything. And, you know, the purpose of preservatives and additives, you know, most of the time is to prolong the shelf life of foods, right? And if you prolong the shelf life, it means that you prevent bacterial growth. You prevent it from going bad. You prevent it from molding and stuff. And honestly speaking, I'd rather eat food with preservatives rather than risk dying from a foodborne illness, you know? Right. Give me preservatives or give me death. Is that the phrase? <laughs> <laughs> so dramatic, but... Gets the point across. Yeah, it does. It's <laughs> what we're about here. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when somebody tries to scare you about the the poisonous stuff on our food, um, preservatives or like pesticides, they think like they'll they'll tell us like, oh, it can kill you because you know they kill insects, they kill animals, blah blah blah. But then again, if someone tries to scare you about how dangerous a chemical is, but then they neglect to mention the dose at which it is toxic, then they're either clueless or they're trying to deceive you. Because the dose is what makes the poison. It's all about the dose. Yeah, that applies to so many things, too. Like, oh, like water. Like, you can easily get water poisoning by getting too much water, but you would never say that water is, like, toxic or bad for you. Like, that's just silly. So that's such a good point. Dose makes the poison. Uh, I love that. (laughs) Okay, let's transition into organic. I'm excited about this one. Emily and I have discussed this on the podcast already, but of course we just have our own perspective. So it'll be great to get a food scientist perspective. But Nia, will you tell us about what organic actually means and is organic food actually healthier for us? Yeah, of course. So organic foods is regulated by the USDA. And so I went to the USDA website to see what is their definition of organic food. So USDA certified organic food are grown and processed according to federal guidelines addressing among many factors, soil quality, animal raising practices, pests and weed control, and uses of additives. So organic producers rely on natural substances and physical, mechanical, or biologically-based farming methods to the fullest extent possible. That's from the USDA website. So in terms of produce, which is probably the most common organic foods that we see out there, so a produce can be called organic if it's certified to have grown on soil that had no prohibited substances applied for Three years prior to harvest, the prohibited substances include most synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. So it is very important to take note of that last part that I just said, most synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. It didn't say all. So a lot of the misconception with organic foods is that a lot of people think that organic means pesticide free. But guess what? 
organic farming uses pesticides. That's one of the things that people miss out on. And they like, so, you know, coming from the food industry's perspective, I have done audits with the, the USDA before in terms of like organic food products. And it's not like they don't allow any chemicals or anything whatsoever and make it, you know, all natural, but they they just allow certain chemicals and pesticides to be used for organic products. Yeah, so um, somebody did a study comparing the amount of pesticides on organic foods and conventional foods. And actually, they found that there are very similar amounts of pesticide on organic foods compared to conventional foods. And they did test for, you know, different pesticides that they use in the different farming methods. But then a lot of things that we see on the internet right now, when they compare the pesticide levels between organic and non-organic, is that they don't even test the same thing. So they test, like, they test completely different chemicals. And of course, like, if you test for one thing on this, on this one thing and then not on the other thing, then of course you're going to say that this one thing doesn't have anything because you're not looking for it in this in the organic produce section, the organic produce part so it's usually a lot of the things that you find online are very biased and another fun fact 99.9 percent of the pesticides found in food are actually naturally occurring and they're actually produced by the plants to naturally defend themselves against fungi and insects so at the end of the day you can't really avoid it if it's all natural <laughs> you find it in the food right yeah, and also another thing to take note of, organic doesn't mean it's free of allergens. Organic doesn't mean it's healthier. I can probably link some studies because there have been numerous studies comparing the nutritional content between conventional foods and organic foods, and they have found no difference in nutritional content whatsoever. And at the end of the day, it just means that you paid more for your food that's what organic that's what buying organic products mean yeah that's basically how emily and i kind of have summed it up in the past on our on this podcast is that if you can afford it go for it but don't think it's going to be any healthier for you um because it's not and you're probably just wasting your money to be honest so teach their own but if you can't afford it don't feel like you have to feel guilty or like you're not eating more nutritious foods if you're not eating organic yeah actually like there's a social study that um that says that a lot of people shame one another for not buying organic produce and it really affected the low-income people who can't afford organic produce because they think, oh, I shouldn't be eating those conventional foods. Like, Right, and there's no need to create fear around produce. Like, and <laughs> that's the one food. People. Yes, yeah. that's the food I ever wanted to get more of. So causing or yeah. putting shame towards eating fruits and veggies is not effective. Yeah, and even if, like, you might not be eating organic, which is completely fine. Even if you're making the efforts to eat pro like fruits and vegetables, you're doing great, which mm-hmm. is kind of the biggest barrier around organic produce versus like conventional produce is that financial barrier. And it's almost like 
It's very much organic food seems to be put on like a pedestal. And it's like if you eat organic, you're some people get superiority contact, like superiority complexes around food they're eating, which like what you eat does not define you in the first place. But also there's no need to, I guess, flaunt it and use it to put down others. But like even at like the grocery store, like things that are organic are always like big, bold, bright, it's organic, like it's better. Like all the fruits and veggies at the store I usually go to, the labels are all like bright green. It says organic in big letters and like like at Trader Joe's, for example. I love Trader Joe's, so no shade at TJ's, but all of the organic stuff says organic in these big, bold, pretty letters on the front. So you always know what's organic and what's not. So even the word organic is kind of like flaunting its stuff. <laughs> it's definitely plays into that marketing tactic that we've is a common theme on this podcast. We discuss different ways that the food industry will try to persuade individuals with marketing tactics. And that's definitely one of them. Yeah. When you said food industry, I was like, Oh, that's me, but I'm not one of them. (laughs) You're one of the good ones, Nia. You're one of the good ones. (laughs) Well, speaking of labels, that kind of brings us into our last little bullet point here. So Nia, will you talk to us more about some common food labels that are on food products and kind of like the regulation behind these food labels and, you know, if we should be fearful of certain things. And I know we've mentioned a lot of this already, but kind of going more into more specific different food labels and what those actually mean. Yeah. So the entity that regulates food labeling is the FDA. And basically they have a rule. I mean, their bottom line is that it shouldn't be misleading. And there are, like, health claims you can put on there. Um, But then again, only certain health claims are regulated. But then a lot of the things that you see in the market right now are actually not regulated by the FDA. And as consumers, we should make wise choices when we see those things. You know, is this just a marketing tactic or is this even legit? So a lot of the common food labels that I see, <laughs> my least favorite one, non-GMO verified project. Uh, we just talked about GMOs earlier, and I think this is completely unnecessary. And the only body that regulates this is them, the non-GMO verified project. It's not even the FDA. And honestly, I just think it's a waste of money because DNA testing is really expensive. And I assume that they have to do that in order to prove that the food is non-GMO, you know? And I know, I was about to say, like, one. a bit of a yeah. conflict of interest right there when you're the one, like, you're that, the only one verifying your own, like, label. Like, I can make be... a label and, ver- <laughs> like, regulate it. Emily approved. That's my... <laughs> well, I was going to say, that'd be like regular. Emily and I saying we're the best podcast of 2021, but it's like based on our own like regulating company. We're like, regulating the we term. <laughs> yeah. So You can even put that on your shirts or something. Dietitian oh, approved. Yeah, like, does that even yeah. mean anything? You know? Right? Yeah. Like, just that one dietitian was like... Cool. Good to go. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking, I was like, we could do Ted approved, but, but, approved. We're the only, <laughs> but we're the only one like regulating. 
I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I can read off the other yes. things that I've seen. Please do. Are not regulated. Okay, the other one, natural. We talked about this earlier too. The FDA has no definition of the word natural. Clean label. That's also kind of like, you know, fear mongering and shaming a little bit because they're already saying that certain foods are dirty, you know? And the FDA also doesn't regulate that. Superfood, that's also a big one. No added hormones or antibiotic free because, you know, um, I, like, just another fun fact from the food industry. I'm just throwing a lot of fun facts right here <laughs> from the food industry. Yeah. It's okay. Fun we, love, we love fun facts. Yeah. Yeah. Like before any produce, not produce, sorry, like any meat gets into our food supply in the stores, I think the USDA actually requires them to test the meat for antibiotics. And if they detect just a little bit, they, they tell them to toss it out. So, like, it's not possible for antibiotics to get in your meat because they do regulate that a lot. So like when people, like when they put antibiotic free, it's very unnecessary because there's no antibiotic there to begin with. And um, another one, you know, relating to meats grass fed and locally, locally grown. It's not like the USDA goes to the farms and be like, okay, are you feeding your chickens and cows grass? If not, you can't put this on your label. I'm like, is your cow from that guy's backyard? Because that's considered local. You know what I mean? I never thought about, like, especially locally grown, like, what is the radius on that? Like, right. <laughs> like locally grown could be the United States to me compared to, like, Asia. Because... It's across the world, and also I love the grass fed. Like they can feed them grass one day, and but like when they come in from the inspection, like oh, get the grass feed out, everyone. <laughs> like, put them in the fields. Put on a show. Put on a show. The FDA is here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Are there any others, Nia, that you kind of wanted to talk about before we before we wrap up? We did have uh, one of our friends at that has celiac on the show before, so we don't have to go too much into, like, gluten-free. But if you want to touch on what that means, that'd be awesome. And, like, I guess on the other, on, on the other hand, you know, there are a lot of, there are certain food labels that are regulated, and um, I can read through the ones that people should look out for. Um, so, for example, gluten-free, that's very beneficial for people who have celiac. Sugar-free, it's also very beneficial for people who have diabetic, diabetic, di- diabetes. Well, I'm so sorry. Cruelty-free because we don't condone testing in animals, right? And I guess vegan or plant-based for those that have a plant-based diet. Though they're not really regulated, but it's helpful. And any allergen labeling, that's also very important if you're allergic to, to something. Yeah. That's good. I like that you include ones that actually are good to look for for those who need it. That's really important. Mm-hmm. Not all food labels are bad because some do have, I guess, good intentions and they genuinely can help a lot of people. Yeah, they have merit. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. 
do you, Emily and I like to kind of like wrap up and like make a big summation of kind of the bottom line of what we talked about today. So do you feel like there's one thing you kind of want to just, if you could put our whole hour of whatever talking into one line, what would it be? Don't be scared of your food. <laughs> I love it. I, the fear mongering is just so ineffective. Okay, now let's get to the fun part. <laughs> I know Nia's got a really great answer for this one. I'm so excited. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for hanging around. I know we we had a lot to discuss, but this was all very, very important information that is kind of in your everyday life because we all eat food and you all grocery shop and see these labels. And I'm sure every single person that has or every person that's listening has had at least one of these conversations and one of these claims. Yeah, it's so. going to be a good episode because... I hear this stuff every single day. So I'll just be like, listen to episode whatever on my podcast, and I'll answer all your questions. Yeah, you <laughs> yeah. answered it all. Yes. Okay, so our fun bonus question of this episode is, what's the best pasta shape? Guests go first. You guys should yes. start. No, no, no. You we always, we always have guests go first. <laughs> okay. Well, I approach this debate from a very food science perspective because I know there's probably some nerd out there that did some research about this <laughs> and then so I did some research and okay a good pasta shape has to have these three things how well it captures and holds the sauce how easy they are to get on the fork and how satisfying it is to bite into them and so I was doing my research and I found this book. It's literally a book about pasta. It's called Pasta by Design. <laughs> it's, it's a book created by this architecture professor from Harvard. Yeah, like this guy, legit, he just used his math skills to make a book about pasta. I want to make book a book ex- about food shapes. <laughs> <laughs> how can we double dip our... Yeah. How can we put dietetics somewhere else? We'll, we'll brainstorm, but that that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, and then, so this book basically explains the geometry of every pasta shape that exists. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I love like, that colloquial so stuff. Yeah, and so according to this book, they created this book to work out the mathematical formulas of pasta and use the results to produce a culinary resource that is both beautiful and useful. <laughs> I always want to say this is the most, yeah, most nerdy bonus question I think we've ever had. In such so a good fun. way. This is, like, amazing. I mean, but this is so funny. Okay, okay. I'm ready to hear more, more about this, Nia. Yeah. I mean, you guys did ask a food scientist a food question. So I have to present this from a food scientist perspective, right? <laughs> yeah, so... Basically, yeah, they use calculus to construct a 3D model of every pasta shape that exists. And they did some math. And basically, they came up with the shape. It's called a cascatelli. You can actually buy this in the stores. Like, if you, I don't know if you can find it. I don't know, probably like Whole Foods or something, like those kind of fancy stores. But yeah, this pasta shape is called a cascatelli. We'll have to include a link of what this looks like because I'm looking at the picture and I don't think I've ever seen this pasta before. No, I've never seen this in the market either, but 
I looked it up online and they do sell boxes of it. So yeah, basically according to them, the shape results in a much tastier pasta. And <laughs> let me read some facts about it. So castatelis are short, like a short pasta shape with a flat strip and ruffles that stick out at a 90 degree angle. They are a mix of the bucatini. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> a bucatini and mafalda pasta. And they have like a half tube, ribbon shape, ruffle shape. And because of their excessive mass, this perfect pasta shape can capture up to 75% of the sauce. And it has slight variations in thickness and ruffles in its shape. And it provides a dynamic contrast in each bite, making it very satisfying to bite at a sensory level. It has right angles, which is apparently very rare in pasta shapes, <laughs> that can resist bite force from all directions, maximizing the sensation of how satisfying the shape fits on your teeth. <laughs> and it has a larger shape than most, like, single pasta shapes so it provides more fork insertion points so there it is i don't even want to say my answer now oh like, i don't either. i feel like neo wins like, like you win the debate like we don't we don't have to continue i could hear you talk about cascatelli all day long that was amazing same i think for listeners i'm gonna try to describe what this looks like so to try to imagine it um but it looks like almost, you know, those, the ice skating protectors that like ice skaters slide on their blades. It kind of looks like one of those, like the plastic version, not the like cloth foam version that goes over the blade, but make it more curvy, if that makes sense. Or you can click the link we're going to include. Or an ear. Or an ear, yeah. That's what I thought too, yeah. was the ear. But Emily's was good. That was a good way of putting it. I would not have thought of it that yeah. way. Um, yeah, Emily, it also looks like even... a sled. It does look like a sled. <laughs> I don't... Did you All even right. have an answer? Like, what... I did have an answer, but okay. I wasn't, I don't have the evidence to back it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's anecdotal evidence, yeah, yeah. With my own personal Emily approved pasta, <laughs> uh, experience. <laughs> I I argue that the bow tie is the best pasta shape. It also I'm gonna get roasted for this because I know I'm saying it wrong. Um, but it also is like called like far far farafel or like how do I say this? I don't know. I don't. Don't know let me. Either. Don't let me keep talking because I'm gonna it, say it. I'm, I'm gonna, gonna say. Is it farfel? Far? It has like it's F A R F A L L E. Well, I I always say bow tie, but like that's the uh, typically the name. Oh. Like Google says, you pronounce it farfale, farfale, farfale. Far see, I said I see. I'm over here like farfel. Because <laughs> in like Italian <laughs> and Spanish, you like say the L E oh, farfale. Yeah. Oh, that's so fancy. See, okay, one, the name. I guess, okay, I guess Cascatelli is, is pretty fancy, too. <laughs> but 
Barf Ballet. Um, I, Hannah knows I'm very much a visual eater. So I really like when my food looks pretty and cool. So seeing like bow tie shapes makes me just very happy. I guess in terms of going off of Han- Hannah's, uh, Nia's three criteria, which I really like. One, I believe bow tie holds sauce pretty well in the little like wings. the wings of the bus. <laughs> it holds it pretty well. Um, very easy to stab with a fork since they're normally they don't lay like vertically. They normally lay flat in your bowl or plates. So very easy to stab. And then I would say very satisfying to bite because of it has the fun little curve and then it's fun to look at. You know, I wonder <laughs> if they ever ranked these pasta sh- pasta shapes, you know? Oh, I'm sure it's <laughs> somewhere. It's somewhere on the internet. Someone's like, these are my opinions. Maybe we'll do that. Oh, like, no, based by science. Ooh. Oh, based on Maybe. I mean, this person did it. <laughs> like, these people did. <laughs> they the best one, so I'm sure with their research, they probably gathered evidence about the others. They should share that information. I'd love to see <laughs> their all-inclusive list. Okay, Hannah. I found I found on Google a definitive ranking of pasta shapes from worst to best. All right, but is it backed up by science? Because we're we're well, talking. No. <laughs> this is by some chick named Michelle who just has opinions about pasta. <laughs> so it's kind of like what Emily and I are doing right now, <laughs> just having opinions. <laughs> um, yeah. I actually was gonna say bow tie as well. I really like bow tie too. Oh we actually God. agreed for once. I didn't know you liked bow tie. I also, in terms of like those three criteria, I think the most satisfying to bite into is a penne. Like the tubular ones, it's just nice to get that like two layers of pasta when you bite into it. Like when it like squeezes together. But I think for the other criteria, like Emily described already, I think a bow tie is my favorite. But I believe if I had this cast Catelli, I would be easily swayed to want to ch- choose that one more. Same. I'm going to go try to find this. Me too. I'm going to sound Amazon so, like, posh and pretentious. I'll be like, I'm looking for your best cast Catelli pasta. Pair it with your fanciest wine, please. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, that was easily our one of our best bonus questions ever. Yes. Well, Nia, thank you so much for coming on this episode. It's going to be such an informational one for our listeners. That was just so much good information. So thank you so much for all that. Yeah. And I guess. Thank you for having me. To kind of end it, Nia, where can our listeners find you? What types of resources or links do you want to share with us? Obviously, we're going to include links to everything Nia wants us to share in the bio, but Right now, this is kind of your time to plug whatever you'd like. <laughs> I mean, I don't really have, like, a professional account like Emily and Hannah. I have a personal account. I post about my daily life in Hawaii. And I, I guess my name is kind of long. So whenever they tag me, you can find me there. <laughs> yeah. And I yeah. did include, yeah. And also, I did include some articles that are very interesting that I found about the things that I talked about yeah all right that is 
the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you tune in next week. And until then, we have hope you have a great rest of your week. Yeah. Alrighty, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in on this episode of the Upbeat Dietitians with your host, Emily Krause and Hannah Thompson. We appreciate you all so much for continuing to support us. In order to support us and sustain the success of this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. If you'd like to provide us feedback for future episodes and guest stars, follow us on Instagram at The Upbeat Dietitians. Lastly, you can show us support by providing a monthly donation using the link at the end of our bio. Once again, thank you so much for listening today and stay tuned next Wednesday for a new episode. Until then, we hope you have a wonderful rest of your week.